1981, the year I was born and the start of the millennial generation, a podcast for the next wave of venture capitalists. This is Fund 81. Hey, Al, thanks for being here. In my experience investing in startups over the past 10 years, I've heard hundreds, if not thousands, of venture capitalists express their desire to increase the racial diversity of their portfolio. Yet, our industry's diversity ratio remains abysmal. I've been doing a lot of thinking about why this ratio still exists, and I've invited Kim Smith to share some of her thoughts on this topic. Kim is my partner Sue's longtime friend and the executive director of the League of Innovative Schools, a national network of forward-thinking education leaders working to improve outcomes for students through the smart use of learning technologies and innovative practices. The League partners with entrepreneurs, researchers, and leading education thinkers and serves as a testbed for new approaches to teaching and learning. Kim has worked for many years to address education equity and has a unique perspective on the barriers to entrepreneurship. She recently shared some of her extremely thought-provoking insights after the murder of George Floyd, and I think her perspective can help drive racial equality in our industry. So Kim, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So... You know, when I was reading more about your background, it really struck me that you've dedicated most of your career to education. And I'm curious, what inspired you to do that? Uh, Well, that's a great question. You know, sometimes I wonder how I landed here myself. I graduated from the University of Colorado Boulder with a degree in journalism uh, with an emphasis in advertising. And my intention was to go and work at one of the big agencies in Manhattan. I had imagined some glamorous Manhattan lifestyle. And I ended up working at a small newspaper in uh, Greenwood Village, Colorado. And uh, I remember working there and thinking that I was just feeling restless in Colorado and decided that maybe it was a time for me to kind of change my environment. So I moved out to Washington, D.C. because as a young Black woman, I had been in Colorado for 13 years and and just was ready to be around the culture of my people and being around kind of more African-American culture. So I move out to D.C. and I get a temp job at the Corporation for Public Broadcasting at a project called the Annenberg Project. And Walter Annenberg gave the corporation millions and millions of dollars to develop distance learning telecourses so that Uh, people could earn college credit at a distance. And so whether you're on a military ship or you're a single mom and you're at home, um, we would deliver these courses over public broadcasting and people would earn college credit. And I just thought it was the most amazing thing that people could earn credit for college courses at home and get an entire college degree through what we were providing. And it just felt like, wow, that was just, it was just really groundbreaking Um, And so I began to uh, dig into developing programs and services to to support students at a distance. And that was when the fire started. Uh, And since then, it's been, um, my focus has been all about um, education and access and learning uh, in different dimensions. And it's been, it's been a great ride. (laughs) I never knew some of that about you. And I actually... (laughs) 
graduated from CU Boulder and <laughs> my dream was to go to Manhattan to work for a big agency. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Which I decided not to do. I always thought that I would wanted to live in New York and then decided that I really liked Colorado and, and I actually stayed. <laughs> wow. Well, who knew? <laughs> I know. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so we've had some conversations leading up to this. And as you know, in 2019, only 1% of venture-backed startup founders were Black. And I'd love to know, in your opinion, what do you think are the top three reasons why we're seeing this ratio? You know, I think that everything starts when you're young. And most of us, when you think about when you're growing up and you're going through school, school is your exposure uh, to learning, to opportunities, to the world, to peers. Uh, and it really sets a foundation on which you build your life. So the number one reason in my mind, you don't see a lot of folks of color, particularly black founders, um, has a lot to do with having really no opportunity or access in school to programs that really tap into creativity and innovation and entrepreneurship. You know, there really is a devoid of those types of programs when you look at schools that are particularly 50% plus, you know, students of color. Also, um, it's not a secret that black folks really don't have access to financial networks. I do a lot of work with networks and one of my side hustles is working with charter school leaders of color. And it's just stunning to see kind of the lack of access to capital, to, to, to money, to invest in whether you're running a school or running a business. The story is, is the same. Uh, it doesn't change. And so I believe that that's a huge reason because people of color, you know, tend to not have um, peers or family sources of of um, money to invest in businesses. And then I also think the third reason is that there is a bias and just straight up racism in how business concepts are valued when they're coming from black entrepreneurs. I remember, um, and I'll talk a little bit about my role at the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship, but you know, I was looking at kids and thinking about the businesses that they created and they would create businesses based on what they're seeing in their community. Uh, and I know that if they were on in a place where they were pitching in a very traditional environment, there's no way that they would receive an investment because the business concept is really it, almost the, the language that they speak and, and, and the opportunities don't resonate in a more kind of white dominant approach to um, investing. So I, I think that that is a contributor as well. Thank you. It makes sense. And, you know, as you know, we focus on opportunities led by at least one female leader. Mm -hmm. And um, we see some similar patterns, especially with the last thing that you mentioned, uh, because sometimes they're solving problems that the white male VC doesn't resonate with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I see that in communities because I see talent everywhere in black communities. I see entrepreneurship in black communities, but you don't, you just don't see the investment to match up. Right. So 
you spent four years at that network for teaching entrepreneurship, which you just mentioned, and you were designing an entrepreneurial pathway for low-income students. Is there additional insight that you learned from that experience that is relevant to this topic? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I should share that when I was in high school, and I don't know where this came from in my life, but I actually um, was in FBLA and I did four years of junior achievement. And I don't have anybody in my family who's an entrepreneur. I, am, I, I think that where my spark came from, just my own kind of being a creative person, but I participated in junior achievement from freshman year to senior year. And so I am someone who knows the benefit of, a, have, of being part of a progressive series of entrepreneurial experiences um, when I was in high school and how that has helped me be the person that I am today, how it gave me confidence, how it helped me kind of to stretch my creative and business skills, how it allowed me to be a leader when I was uh, a young person. And so when I arrived at uh, NIFTY, for short, the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship, um, I knew that if I could put in place an entrepreneurship pathway from middle school to high school and allow students to have experiences that expose them to entrepreneurship, allow them to learn the fundamental concepts, and then spend most of their time applying what they've learned, then we could indeed build opportunities for students that don't have access to have self-efficacy around their, their selves as entrepreneurs. It, I ended up uh, you know, creating the pathway, working with publisher partners, creating content, um, and eventually offering a, uh, a certification for high school students kind of all the way up through their senior year I fundamentally believe that entrepreneurship needs to be built into every single student's um, high school pathway. So what inspired you to join junior achievement in ninth grade? Wow, it's such a good question. And I think the way I would answer that is I was looking to fit somewhere. You know, I was uh, attending a high school in a um, predominantly white, uh, area. Um, it was very difficult for me out of 4,000 kids. I think there were maybe 150 that were of color. Um, I had a hard time making friends. Um, and it was just a very um, challenging place to be. And so I found through junior achievement that, uh, I mean, I came in as a person, you know, just a young kid learning about, um, business, but I found a community there, you know, and I, to this day, remember the junior achievement conferences and the friends that I made in junior achievement and the businesses we built. And in my dad's house, we have all the products that, you know, we created and, and it was just such a, um, a place of acceptance for someone who just was, you know, kind of not fitting into the mold um, in the environment of my high school. Hmm. It's so interesting how seemingly small things can make such an impact on lives. Yeah, yeah. And, and to think that I did it for four years, and I have to say, I came out of 
high school and went into college and my I mean, I, it was a it, college was a different experience for me. The the ratio was the same, but I, my confidence in being a leader, um, and my ability to kind of think outside the box and push edges, uh, really helped me a great deal in in college. Uh, so, I, I am a true believer in entrepreneurship as a, a way to unlock, um, and and unleash what students have already built into them. Hmm. And you shared something with me before this interview and that you believe there is a biased assumption that low-income students are not entrepreneurial. And I'm wondering if you can tell me more about that. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I think that there's a lot of assumptions that are made around um, low-income communities of color. You know, I'm a believer in proximity. Like in order for change to happen, in order for you to really understand the conditions and be able to see the talent and the ingenuity, you have to be up close to it. And unfortunately, in this world, the folks that have the money and the power and could really create change for low-income students of, uh, of color look at communities that are low-income, you know, in a very stereotypical way and not being these kind of wonderful, vibrant, creative spaces, you know, and I said earlier, like I can walk into a black community and I just see talent everywhere, right? And what a beautiful thing to, to walk into that space and just see the seeds of what could be some, you know, really powerful business opportunities, products, services, and programs, you know, whether it's the food that we cook, whether it's media and music, you, you name it, there's so much happening in these communities that um, people don't pay attention to. And then there's the fact that these folks are surviving, right, in these communities. So there has to be something just in the spirit. You know, I think about, um, I've been spending a lot of time with Harriet Tubman over the past, you know, month or so since um, George Floyd. And I, I am just like so humbled by the strength and the talent of a woman who didn't know how to read and, and took all of these folks through intricate networks and set up systems and mechanisms for signaling and taking care of them. And I mean, she did that, right? And you have to be able to see that. You have to be able to see it. Take the blinders off. Um, so, you know, there is a bias. There is unfortunately racism, but there's so much in these spaces that could be brought out and supported and invested in. Oh, wow. There's a lot in there. Um, <laughs> I love that thought about Harriet Tubman. I, I learned a similar lesson when I was about 22. Uh, my grandmother remarried after my grandfather passed, and she remarried this man who became really successful, but he didn't have more than a high school education. He actually lied about his age, dropped out, <laughs> of high school so he could join the military during World War II, mm. came back and finished high school. And 
anyhow, I, as a 21-year-old, just kind of had this bias that he wasn't as smart as some of the people that I was working with. Mm-hmm. And we went to go buy a new TV with them. And he was probably 78 at the time. And this woman said, oh, this one's really complicated. I'm not sure you're going to want this one. And he Mm -hmm. said, well, I've researched this and this is a TV that I want. And she kept just sort of demeaning him. And (laughs) he finally said, you know, I saw this advertised for $450 more down the street and I'm going to go buy it there. <laughs> Thank you for your time. <laughs> but I, I always, I, in, in that moment, I just realized that I had really underestimated that man <laughs> um, and try to always remember that in, in life. But yes, uh, yes, very humbling, you know, and uh, yeah, it's the assumptions that we all make. I mean, you know, it's human nature, but um but I'm hoping that there's, there are people that are willing to get proximate and, and learn and see more, mm-hmm. you know? Are there other assumptions related to diversity and entrepreneurship that you'd like to challenge? Well, there's one in particular, and that is this notion that viable business models cannot be constructed and realized in black communities. Uh, And I'll say more about kind of what I mean, but I, first I want to say that, you know, people think because I've worked for in nonprofits for 20 years that I'm, you know, anti-capitalism and the, and no, not at all. I went to business school. I have an MBA, right? I am a, I am a believer in the idea that there you know, there are capital markets and there's markets that can work. Okay. So, but what, what frustrates the heck out of me is that there seems to be a complete lack of creativity and interest and assumption that there's no business to be generated in black and brown communities and therefore investment is not made. And you could look at gentrification as kind of a, a symptom of that, right? Instead of communities and cities looking at spaces where black and brown folks live and and thinking about how to create thriving neighborhoods that are kind of diverse and kind of retain the fabric of the community, yet they're thriving and growing. You know, there's this this immediate trigger to just mow neighborhoods down and send people kind of to the outskirts. Um, And I will share with you, Elizabeth, that one of my points of inspiration is that is a story I tell about my black parents, Alan Gloria Smith, living in Cleveland, Ohio, who were able to purchase a house in Shaker Heights, which was the number one school district in the state of Ohio back in the 60s and 70s, solely because the white people in Shaker Heights were done with the racism that was happening to black families in Shaker. And they decided to develop a model in partnership with black folks to um, incentivize white families to stay and black families to move in. Right. And so Shaker is like a national model for 
creating a vibrant, thriving, diverse community. And I lived it, right? And so I know it can happen. I've seen it. And so it frustrates me that people aren't able to look at um, diversity and kind of equity from a business model perspective and see opportunity. So there's opportunity that's being overlooked and there's also a growing market because the demographics of our country are changing. Yep. But there's a lot of things that are keeping it the same, even though there's opportunity there. And so when we think about the systematic change that needs to happen, what systematic change do you think should be prioritized? Well, I think that, you know, there are some what I call conditions or levers that could be pulled that could create the space and opportunity and momentum that is needed. So one thing will not surprise you is that I believe entrepreneurship should be a required course, if not multiple courses in all schools uh, that are majority um, students of color. Like I think without a doubt um, that has to be a baseline, right? Um, I also believe that there's a significant opportunity um, at the post-secondary level to launch kind of urban colleges and universities along the lines and at the, at the same level of respect as Babson College, right? And making an investment within the post-secondary space for students of color. You take the University of the District of Columbia, 85% of their students are uh, of color uh, and it's you know, 5,000 kids, you know. Couldn't, couldn't we launch a city college within, within UDC that's really focused on entrepreneurship? So at the beginning level, there's kind of the education foundation. There's some system change that can take place there. And then if you look at kind of the venture capital space um, and the investment space, you know, I've been reading about, you know, Robert Smith and his 2% solution that was just announced where, you know, he's encouraging um, corporations um, to invest 2% of their um, profit into black and brown communities, just, just name it and make it happen. So there's, there's, there's kind of at the investment level, I wonder, are there opportunities that where that kind of approach could apply? Um, and then the last thing I think, because proximity is so critical, um, I do actually think one-to-one -one mentorship is important, but here's the deal. Not a day, not a week, not a year, but deep multi-year mentorship that allows a student to have access to the, um, not only kind of exposure to the environment, but the networks um, that folks have. So I would love to see something, you know, at a, at a scalable level around deep, uh, kind of long lasting mentorship. Yeah, that's great. Uh, have definitely seen the power of mentorship firsthand. And it's an interesting time because there's a lot of people who want to do something to change the situation right now. And I think that that could be, you know, 
something that could really move the needle and could take advantage of the people who want to do something right now. And one thing that I've been thinking about as I'm just learning more about this topic is there's the concept that if you see someone who looks like yourself, who is successful or an entrepreneur who's innovative, then you're more likely to believe that you could be that person. And I didn't really fully understand how much that had impacted my life until I thought about it. You know, I grew up in a small town very far from Silicon Valley, and I didn't know anyone who had done something really, really big. There were successful small business owners that were very successful and and capable people, but there was no one that built a billion-dollar business in our community. And I had to really shed a lot of beliefs there to believe that I could be a part of something that was a billion dollar business. Mm-hmm. And I, I really feel that there's a lot of potential there, like you said, to bring in people who help people believe that it's possible. Yeah, there was, there's a book uh, that was released a couple of years ago uh, by Julia Freeland Fisher called Who You Know. Um, and it talks about the multiplier effect when low-income students of color have that level of exposure and how their, their personal networks expand 10x, 20x, just by this type of um, relationship. So it is very powerful um, and life-changing. And what about immediate action? We talked a little bit about systematic change, but... I I suppose mentorship is an immediate action, but are there other immediate actions that people should be taking today if they want to do something to change the ratio? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, I think one of the, first of all, it starts with um, curiosity and willingness. And so that may sound simple um, and easy to do, but it does take some energy to be curious and to be willing Um, And to not look at kind of the, you know, the, um, the thing we always know, but the thing you actually don't know, and actually to be really kind of like humble about it, like I actually don't know. And so I want to be really curious. So that to me is, is a starting point. I also think that obviously, you know, there's a, a structure kind of around white dominant models of investment white dominant models of what an entrepreneur looks like, white dominant models on what what an entrepreneurial idea is. Um, and so I think um, there has to be kind of what I call an expansion of the mental model. And I think that, so again, I'm a believer in proximity. So the idea of getting proximate to black entrepreneurs and just listening to their expertise and perspective is absolutely necessary right now is for people just to, to spend that time and just listening. I was talking to a, a white funder in education and she said, this is not a time when white people need to be talking. Right? This, is, this is a time when white people need to listen. Uh, no dialogue. I said, I said hey, all right. <laughs> um, anyway, there's value in that. You can tell I believe in students as pipeline. 
And I think that students today think different than our generation and they can see farther into the future and into spaces that we're not even thinking of yet. And so there are many ways to get into schools, um, working with students or in kind of the out of school space. Um, so I would, I would really spend time there as well. And are there things that well-intentioned people are doing to improve diversity and race relations that you wish they would stop doing? Um, it's a long list. <laughs> 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 um, so uh, right now, right, there's a lot of, well, there's a lot of talking. So I, I want the talking to settle down a little bit. I want the proclamations to settle down a little bit the idea of a quick fix. There's a document on uh, white supremacy culture that I've used within the organization that I work for at Digital Promise. There's the, one of the uh, components of this document talks about urgency, right? That white dominant culture has urgency, right? Um, now we have to be urgent, but you know, urgent, I guess in the spirit of creating the right conditions and not trying to just kind of move ahead without the thoughtfulness. So, um, and then the other thing that, uh, this is my drive me nuts list, by the way. The other thing that drives me nuts is this, you know, pulling these kind of old diversity ideas out of our pocket. Let's hire a person of color. You know, they'll change everything and, or they'll, you know, we'll, if we have one on our team and we all know, uh, we all know that um, that this is really culture change. Um, and so, um, so it, you know, at Digital Promise, we're doing a lot of work on culture. It's a, it's a white-led organization. The leadership team is, is predominantly white, um, but we're, we're taking the time to turn the crank on identity and culture, uh, you know, to try to make sure that we're coming at this in a way that's, um, that feels good. Would you be willing to share one thing that you're doing to change the culture in that direction? Uh, so, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I think, so what ends up happening when it comes to anti-racism and when people start to do the work, um, they, people, particularly in, in white dominant cultures, want to jump to the, the work, the output, you know, the, the thing we're creating, right? The product. But the challenge is that um, the identity work, the people work has to happen first. So at Digital Promise, we've been spending a lot of time like just really examining our culture under the microscope of kind of who we are and how we're showing up and what language we're using with each other and what assumptions are we making. So it's like this continual interrogation of like our, how we're being present in what we're saying, what decisions we're making, who's in the room, you know, and, and just starting to really ask those questions before moving. Um, so that's some of the work that we're doing um, ourselves. Great, thank you. And you talked a little bit about counterproductive actions, but is there counterproductive language that's being used right now? Well, even the term, like, um, 
you know, anti, well, first of all, racism went from something that, you know, six months ago, it, it, you know, for most white folks, it meant, am I, am I, uh, you know, kind of being kind of blatantly, uh, you know, using certain words or, you know, um, taking certain actions or wearing a white hood. And then within six months, you know, people are now comfortable saying, you know, well, you know, as a white person, I am, um, I am a racist by nature. If you, if you read White Fragility, that's, you know, the approach Robin DiAngelo takes. Um, but, you know, and so, so now racist and anti-racist and so these, these terms are being used in a way that feels, you know, almost as if being an anti-racist just means that now you're conscious of racism. That's not true, right? Um, um, conscious raising is the first step, right? Awareness is the first step. That means you're starting to be aware, but it's the first step of 25, right? And, it's, and so I think that that, those phrase, that phrase anti-racist is being used in such a way that I think it's, it's turning in to be counterproductive because it's, it's being assumed that, you know, people are anti-racist just because they're starting to be more aware. Yeah, that's a good, good catch there. I'm hopeful that as more people are motivated to look deeper at this topic, that the education will be there. Because, I mean, honestly, I six months ago had no idea what the definition of an anti-racist was. And mm -hmm. since then I've taken the time to look it up and, and read about it. And I'm hopeful that there's more people doing that. And I know, you know, with all these things, when something becomes a hot topic, it sometimes fizzles out. And mm -hmm. I'm, I really hope this doesn't fizzle out. What do you think? What's your hope level is, is this going to be the straw that breaks the camel's back? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, I, I'm glad I live to see the day where there's definitely a different um, capacity and interest of white people to be open to the notion that slavery is not something that's in the past and in our history books that it, it bleeds into um, present day in the institutions of our country, healthcare, education, real estate, the criminal justice system. So I, I have hope because that's happening in my lifetime. But we all know that the actions are really what's necessary um, and, um, you know, you know that I have been carrying my flag as what I call an education activist around this notion of co-conspirators, um, white co-conspirators, because I, I believe that just like what happened in Shaker Heights, like where white and black people came to the table together and really pushed against a system, like I believe that that can happen with our institutions. And I am hopeful that we have cracked open something 
and the reason I have put forth this effort, this call to action is because I have to be at the table and I have to push in partnership with white people that I know that believe that this is the right thing to do. So I can only hope that something, the protests combined with, you know, white folks being fed up combined with the opportunity for collaboration against systems change. I hope that that is going to continue to flow, but I worry about political systems and other forces that, you know, can, can turn against us. So. Hmm. Do you want to share a little bit more about the concept of co-conspirators? Sure. So, well, I will say, first of all, I, you know, I've heard this term. Um, there is a, a woman by the name of Bettina Love who um, has uh, coined this phrase, the abolitionist teaching movement. Uh, and she wrote a book, We Want to Do More Than Survive. Uh, and I saw her speak. And if any of your listeners have a chance to look Bettina Love up on YouTube, where she talks about, you know, what it's going to take um, for black and brown children to thrive uh, in a system that has completely failed them. So she was the first person I heard who said the term ally is not strong enough. We don't just need friends. Right? We need people that are um, at the table, kind of strategizing, working, and then utilizing their access and privilege and power to create the anti-racist conditions and opportunities. And so she used the term co-conspirator. And I was like, that's it. And ever since then, and, you know, because she made reference to the, you know, the Underground Railroad and the history, which I knew the history, but I just hadn't heard that phrase in a long time. And, and, for, and so for me, it is a phrase for people that are willing to, you know, kind of think about with this privilege I have in this world as a white person, how can I almost like use privilege for good? Um, you know, how can I be a partner and collaborator and take what I have to move things forward? And it might involve risk, pushing edges, saying things that are not popular, you know, taking actions that, you know, may cause you to lose a friend or two, but um, it's because you believe it's that important. It's really inspiring. And you shared this concept with me and uh, been thinking a lot about it. And actually I listened to Bettina loves mm. talk today. Thanks okay. for your recommendation. <laughs> and I'll put that in the show notes for people. She's very, she's an extremely powerful speaker. Yes. Um, yes. And, you know, I, I, I want to share publicly that I would really like to join you as a co-conspirator. And I, I share that publicly because I know myself and that I have a lot on my plate and get busy and I don't want to forget this. So I'm hopeful that <laughs> saying it now will etch it in stone. Uh, yes, yes. Well, I appreciate that. And I think, um, 
although you don't work directly in the education sector, there, it, this applies to whatever spaces you, you move in. And so it's, um, you know, I'm glad to know of your interest. And I will tell you that my intent is that uh, we will move to action. Uh, and so um, that's really where, um, uh, you know, the co-conspiracy and the notion comes to life. So, so I'm glad you're, you know, sitting in one of the seats here and um, going to be taking this journey. Well, it's a privilege. No pun intended there. With privilege. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> That's a great way to, you know, wrap up on a joke. That's a good joke. <laughs> That's fun. So is there anything that we haven't covered that you'd like to address? Um, you know, I just, I hope people come away from this conversation just, you know, being inspired and uh, around kind of thinking of the role that they play in this world and, you know, and just knowing, you know, that there is just some amazing talent um, in these communities of color. And I just, you know, if, if, if I leave here, this, leave this conversation and there's, you know, one, two, five, ten people who are willing to be curious and to start being proximate, uh, that will be a, a, a win for me. So um, that's, that's what my hope would be. Mm. And if I invite you to be as self-promoting as possible, what's one thing you'd like to share with our listeners? Or two or three things? <laughs> <laughs> Well, not surprisingly, you know, this, uh, this work that I'm doing around uh, this notion of, of co-conspirators, uh, it's kind of, it's my heart and soul right now. And um, I just want to put that notion out there and plant the seed in people's uh, minds about, um, you know, kind of starting to learn more and, and, and do more in that regard. You know, I am, uh, and like you, I have my hands in several places, you know, by day I get to work with superintendents across the country that have an innovative mindset. And that's powerful to, to think that maybe this collective is the collective that's going to lead change. Um, by night, I have my own side hustle with charter school leaders of color, and that's 400 and something leaders across the world. And, you know, I'm just trying to bring as as much as I can to them to resource their work for black and brown kids. And so um, my self-promotion is really in, you know, being a catalyst for um, what I hope will be change. And, um, you know, and uh, for the, the work that Harriet led. So, you know, I'm, I'm under her tutelage right now. And uh, so I, I just appreciate, you know, just having a, a platform to, to be honest and, and share, um, share that part of me. Mm. Well, I'm really grateful for your time today. I know you're busy doing impactful things. And I also want to out one thing, which is after I asked you to do this interview, I was listening to um, an interview with this black woman who mentioned that 
she actually started declining invitations to speak on the topic of race because since the murder of George, George Floyd, she had gotten so many invitations and it was distracting her from the important work that she felt she was born to do. And I just kind of wanted to share that thought because it really struck me when I heard that. And I just want to let you know, and I also want to encourage others that want to be a proponent of keeping people focused on whatever work they feel they're born to do. And I, I know that you're doing important work and just really appreciate you being here today. Oh, thank you. Thank you for the invitation. You know, I, you know, I, I like to be in, in places and where, you know, who knows what might happen? Who knows what might come out of this conversation? So I appreciate the opportunity. So, you know, hopefully we can get back together in a year and talk about change that has happened. Uh, <laughs> so thank you. Thank you for I, that. I'm confident that'll be the case. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, this time to end has come too quickly, but we're going to sign off. And to our listeners, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for listening. If you like what you've heard, please take a minute to rate us on iTunes and share this episode. For more tips on how to be a better venture capitalist, check out fund81.com. That's F-U-N-D-8-1.com. <laughs>